everyone. Uh, if you haven't met me, my name is Tim. I'm normally a regular at the 10 and the, the 10.30 and the 6 o'clock service, uh, but it's great to be here. Uh, I'm going to pray for us as we're looking to that. We're going to be jumping around the Bible a lot today, um, so most of what I say will be up on the screen for you to read. Um, that's there for two reasons. One, so that I know it's there, and two, that you can actually know that what I'm saying comes from the Bible. Um, but let me just pray for us as we keep going. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we're here today. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have to, to look at your word, to, to understand your will for us in our lives, uh, and to know who you are more completely. We just pray that you will guide our hearts and our minds as we listen, that we know uh, your will for us, that what is said and done here is done for your glory and in Jesus' name. And we pray all of this in the Son's name. Amen. Uh, well, we're continuing on with our Bible overlook. Uh, overview, sorry, uh, and we're up to the the part of the Bible I think is probably the least read by the modern Christian. Um, we're coming up to what's called the law. Uh, it's it's not an exciting name. None of us hear the word the law and are immediately filled with joy. And I thought to get us into the mindset of what we're looking at is to think about. Uh, the first time maybe you or maybe if you're a bit older, your children or grandchildren wait for their learner's license. Uh, that is, the license that they needed to get so that they could learn to drive their car. Uh, does anyone know what you're meant to do to get your learner's license? You've all done it, so surely you should all know. You're meant to pass the test, and where are you meant to find the answers for the test? In the book. Now, this is the modern one. It's, it's 2019, right? So we use PDFs now. Uh, so you download the PDF off the website. But I remember when I was a kid, and I came home with this big, thick book, and my first thought was, I'm not going to read that. Uh, I'm going to just try and see if I can get through the test. I, fortunately, I, I found out online you could do like practice tests online with all the answers. So I just did the practice test over and over and over again until I memorized the answers, which looking back was probably the same amount of effort as reading the book. Uh, but it's, it's a daunting experience as a young person to get this huge book of rules and to then try and memorize them. And the only thing that really keeps you going is knowing that your, your rules are, are heading, knowing these rules will get you something better. Uh, in this instance, it will get you a learner's license so that you can actually drive a car. And once you get your license, everything's great, right? Anyway, uh, but that's what the whole point. You, you learn these rules. But I think sometimes, I don't know most of the road rules now as I stand here before you. Uh, I think sometimes when we see a cop car, we're all a little bit afraid, not because we're invertly speeding, right? We're not doing 80 down, what's his name, Peter Brock Drive, whatever. Um, but because we're always like, oh, is there a rule that I've forgotten? Is there a driving law that I don't remember that I might get picked up for? And it's a bit of a terrifying experience uh, when you're on the freeway and you see a cop car and suddenly everyone is, instead of doing 110, they're all doing 80 just to make sure there's not a rule that they're breaking. And I think kind of this is what we look like when we think of the law at the Bible. Now, to give you a bit of context, we are... At this point in our Bible timeline, I just cut off the first half. This is the Old Testament section of our Bible timeline. We are here. We've started off with creation. We've moved on to sin. We've moved into to Abraham and the promise, to Joseph and the Exodus. And now we're at the place called Mount Sinai, uh, where we receive the law. And the law covers these four books. The second half of Exodus, all of Leviticus, the first half of Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is a little different. Deuteronomy isn't at Mount Sinai, but Deuteronomy is a restatement. It's often miscalled the second law, but it's actually a restatement of the original laws to the descendants of Moses to remind them of what God has done for them and what they need to do in return. 
And so this is the law. So when you hear the Bible talk about the law, it's talking about this. It's also referencing actually the whole Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, and so on and so forth. Uh, But this is primarily where the rules are. And obviously the rules are given at a place called Mount Sinai. Now I tried to look for a picture of it. Now I can't tell if this is Mount Sinai or a photo taken from the top of Mount Sinai. All the descriptions aren't very clear. Either way, this is kind of what we're looking at. Uh, God has ascended on top of this hill and he is communicating to Moses. Moses has gone up and there's these these terrifying moments of thunder and lightning and the people are both afraid and curious uh, and they they don't want to go near God because they're afraid of the the amazing, just the wonder of his presence will kill them. Uh, And so God brings up Moses and throughout the next few books, he starts to issue to Moses the law. And it's not just one long sit down, here's the law. There's lots of little stories in between in these books, uh, mostly of Israel's failure. Um, but it's a, lot, it's a big section of just understanding what God wants and expects of his people. And so I was trying to endeavor how do we talk about this? How do we learn about the law? And how do we approach it? It's, it's a confronting book to read. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Leviticus especially. There's stuff in there that really can make you uncomfortable. As a, as a 21st century Western Australian, as in Westerner in Australia, not Western Australia. Uh, I mean, you might be a Western Australian, that's fine too. Uh, and I, I remember sitting on Facebook, and Facebook is a great way to see where people's theology lies when they try to give really quick answers to complicated questions. Uh, and I often hear, well, Jesus has come, so the law no longer matters. Or we don't read that part of the Bible anymore. And I do agree that Jesus changes how we read it, but it makes me uncomfortable, particularly when you see, and we'll see in this, how Jesus actually upholds the authority of the law to then immediately dismiss it because of him. And so I wanted to say to you three things that I think the law is about and how those understanding it in that way can help us actually read the law. The first thing I want to say is that the law is about, about a relationship. It's about a relationship with God. Uh, It's not really about rules for salvation, but about a relationship with God. And one of the key things we learn is is that it's a relationship that is established by God first, and then the law is given. If you read this from Exodus 19, just before our reading, it says, "You yourself." Oh, I'm going to read from the a little bit extra, just so we get a context. It says, "Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob.'" And what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. When the law is given, when the Ten Commandments are given as they are read to us, they're not given in the sense of, do this and I will save you. It's, I have saved you, so do this. Otherwise, the, the whole story of Exodus that we looked at last week would have been a completely different story. Moses would have found the burning bush. God would have given him the law, said, go to get the Israelites to do this, and then I will come and save them. But instead, it's, it's the other way around. God saves, and then he asks. And the asking is not, 
It's not an ultimatum. It's a, this is how we are to be in relationship. And it's a bit of an unusual thing to do. I, I want to be in a relationship, so here's a set of laws. But when you actually think about it, all of your relationships have rules. I learned very early into my marriage that I cannot leave socks on the floor. And I don't do that because I don't want socks on the floor. I do that because it's, you know, it sounds awful to call it a rule because we don't like the word rule, but it's the truth. Our children cannot speak to us in specific ways. They're not allowed to use words that we might use in other contexts. Our parents are meant to, aren't meant to be so involved in our lives that they consume us. We have rules. And this is exactly the same kind of thing. The difference is that rather than being passive-aggressive about it, God is up front and tells the truth. And this is what we call, this passage especially, is really important because this is what we call a covenant. Uh, Those of you who were here when we talked about Abraham will know that a covenant is a big deal. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. Uh, Traditionally, both parties say that they will do something. And if they break their end of the bargain, then the other person's bargain is broken. The first covenant was amazing in that Abraham didn't have to do anything. God walked through the bodies of the animals. But here we see the covenant is shifting. We we see the covenant is changing and that there is now expectations on God's people, not just because they will be great, but because they will be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. They are no longer going to be like the rest of the world. They're going to be something different. And that is why this covenant, this second covenant, is put in place. That's a really important word because if you ever go to any sort of Bible teaching, covenant is a big deal. Whenever you see a covenant, you've got to pay attention. And uh, the interesting thing about this covenant is that it's formed from a relationship that would not naturally occur. What I mean by that is that the Israelites were not naturally bound to come to God. God came to them and rescued them. Secondly, it's a relationship that acknowledges God as Savior. God establishes it. The first commandment. I'm sure it's our favorite commandment. God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The very first commandment puts the entire law in context of God's salvation. I brought you out of slavery. I saved you. It's not something that is given to control but to help them live in the freedom that God has promised them. Uh, When we read the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not kill, we kind of agree with them, but I think sometimes we're uncomfortable with this strong language that God uses. What I mean is that God says, do not do this. But we don't like that language. We want to, you know, we want gentler language. But I think we we underestimate the, the freedom that comes with a negative instruction. What I mean is that when you say to a child, do not go outside and that's the only instruction you give them, now you probably would give them more instruction, but do not go outside, that child knows that anywhere in the house, they can go. Now if you say, do not go here, they know that they can't go there, but they can probably go everywhere else. There's this freedom in negative instructions that I think we underestimate and we don't acknowledge. We know what we don't have to not do. You know when you walk into someone's house and you have no idea the etiquette in the house, you take your shoes off, and normally they go, oh yeah, take your shoes off. Sometimes it would just be easy if you walked in and there's a list of rules of do not do this, and then you know exactly what you, don't have, what you shouldn't be doing in that person's house to offend them. But it's a relationship that comes from salvation. 
that acknowledges God as Savior. Thirdly, it's a relationship that involves every aspect. It's all-encompassing. It is a deep, loving relationship that hits us to the very center of who we are. Uh, As you go through the law, as you look through the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, you'll see there are lots of laws that cover all sorts of unusual things down to the clothing that you wear and the way that you farm. And what we actually learn from this is that God's law is about every aspect of our life. It's not just about one or two things. Uh, There's a famous passage from the Gospels. Uh, a bit of context, Jesus is, is, this, is, this is, comes just before the story of the Good Samaritan. And a, a teacher, uh, Jesus asks a teacher, what is the best commandment? Well, the, the main commandment. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that line isn't dismissive of the rest of the commandments. If anything, it's a summary of what the commandments, what the law is all about. Just to give you an idea what I'm talking about, here's your Ten Commandments. Uh, they're kind of your springboard for the rest of the law. They're kind of, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but they're split up into two very distinct sections. You've got laws relating to us and God, no other gods, no idols, do not take the Lord's name in vain. You've got laws relating to how we interact with one another, honor your parents, no murder, no adultery. Uh, and I left the Sabbath uncolored because I feel like the Sabbath kind of crosses over into both. It is both a gift for mankind and also a way for us to honor God. And what we actually start to see is how the, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor is not a dismission of the whole commandments of the whole law, but a summary of everything that we do. It's a, it's, it's a statement saying that every part of our life is about God and loving others. So the law is about a relationship. Secondly, the law is about God's grace in contrast to our failures. What I mean by that is that what the law is really meant to do is to highlight our failure and God's holiness. If I was to summarize the book of Leviticus, it would be with this verse. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. God presents himself as the goal. The holiness of the Lord is the goal. And yet, what we see in the law is something that almost seems impossible for us to reach. Sin is such a powerful thing in our lives that when we consider ourselves and our strength against it, it it seems unbeatable. And the law isn't, it's not meant to make us feel awful, but it's meant to highlight just how depraved humanity is and how holy God is in contrast. Leviticus one of the books of the law, is really all about the holiness of God and the uncleanliness of humanity. And when I say unclean, I mean heading to death. Heading to damnation. 
When the Bible uses the word unclean, it's not necessarily always sinful, but it means it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of how sin has brought death into this world and that we are in that state of uncleanness, of death. It's meant to convict our heart. It's meant to push us to do something more. Uh, I like to think of the, the, the law as like looking in a mirror and realizing that you've gotten a little bit bigger and using that motivation to, to try and lose some weight. Now, I've done that plenty of times and I keep falling back into not getting any smaller. Um, but it's about convicting our hearts and it helping us see what we've done. Uh, the law is immense and huge and complicated and difficult. Uh, but it's all about the heart. And I'll give you a few examples. Uh, we did Samuel a few, week, uh, few weeks last year. Um, and Saul, he did everything that he was meant to do in the law. He provided offerings to God. And yet God saw his heart, saw his attempt to essentially bribe him and condemned him for it. And then we get this passage from Matthew in summary of what David did. And Jesus says this to the, the Pharisees. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his company were hungry? He entered the house of God and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, it's a quote from Hosea 6, uh, in which God talks about the nations that do evil things and yet sacrifice to God, thinking they've done enough. And what we learn from this is that it's really about our hearts. It's about where we stand in relation to God. And this is really important because there's some passages in Leviticus uh, that bring about the death sentence. Uh, right now, I think I'm wearing two different fabrics, which I think is a death sentence in Leviticus. And we'll get to that reading out in a bit. Um, adultery is a death sentence in Leviticus. And yet, David committed adultery. And Stuart and I were talking, and we realized that it's, it's, I can't find anywhere in the Bible where someone is actually executed for these things that the death sentence is put upon. And it's because it's not so much about saying, here is the protocol for punishment, but saying, here is how unrighteous you are when you do these things against me. Here is how dangerous sin and death is. Here is how awful it is. God understands our failure and puts in place mercy. Uh, Leviticus has what we call chapter 16. It's called the Day of Atonement. Uh, and it was, would, I've, if you come to the other services, it'll be in our other readings. Uh, but essentially, it's this, it's this practice that God puts in place where two goats are brought and, and lots are cast and one goat is chosen to be slaughtered and the other is set free. And it says this, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness and care for, in the care of someone appointed for the task, 
the goat will carry on itself all the sins to a remote place, and man shall release it into the wilderness. God knows that mankind is not going to keep his laws. Uh, That's kind of a summary of Deuteronomy. You guys are just going to keep failing. But God is merciful. I don't know if you guys know this, but God is actually described as merciful more in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. The word God of mercy is used a lot more in the Old Testament. I wanted to count it, but I kind of lost track of counting it. And Anyway, the point is it's there a lot. Uh, God is described as a God of mercy because he puts, thing, he puts this day of atonement, he puts in the practice of sacrifices, not to encourage brutality, but to acknowledge that you are going to sin and you need forgiveness. The law accounts for the reality of humanity's failure. But the sacrifice ultimately isn't enough, which is why we lead to this third point, which is that the law is for Christ. The law is about Christ. What I mean by that is that Jesus is and did come to fulfill the law. This passage from Matthew chapter 5, it says this, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a a bit of a a complicated passage. I remember reading that the first time and not having really much of an idea what Jesus is talking about. One of the first things we see, though, is that Jesus, first of all, he upholds the authority of the law. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. And that's really important because I think when I hear someone say, we don't, follow the law of the Old Testament anymore because Jesus has gotten rid of it. That's not, that's not right. He has fulfilled it, and that's a very, very different thing. If we, when we say we don't follow it because Jesus has gotten rid of it, what we're actually saying is that the law is a mistake, is wrong. And that's a very dangerous thing for us to say, particularly when Jesus upholds it and says that the law is right, and the apostles uphold it and say that the law is good. It does, however, highlight that even the Pharisees in their righteousness, and if there was someone who could claim to be righteous by law, it was the Pharisees, were not doing enough to earn the righteousness that the law was meant to bring. Uh, When we think of the law, we do think of people like the Pharisees. Uh, And it's important that we kind of differentiate between them and what the law actually says. They had taken the law to the extreme. They had taken the spirit of the law, they'd forgotten the importance of the heart of mercy, and they had taken it just way out of the, what it was meant to be. Wow. Kind of like getting a speeding ticket for doing 81 in an 80 zone. It's that sort of kind of really strict, no, no grace, no understanding of what the law is meant to do, but just to be as strict as possible. Now, I want to, you know respect our authorities, we shouldn't, if you get a ticket, deal with it, that's life. Uh, 
But then Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law. And what does that mean? And if you think back to what we've said about being in a relationship about mercy, the purpose of the law is to bring us into a right relationship with God, to live a right relationship with God. And Jesus has on the cross fulfilled the law by bringing humanity into a right relationship with God. The word that we would use is righteousness. His cross has made us righteous, right with God. The fulfillment of the law does not make the law worthless or meaningless, but it means that the consequences of our failures are not enough to surpass the righteousness that Jesus has given us. I also want to clarify that Jesus' fulfillment of the law is not because of the law's failings, but because of ours. Uh, This is Romans 8. Uh, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The law itself was not the problem. The wording there, if you read it, is that from the law of sin and death, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Now, Paul uses the word fleshy to mean a world corrupted by sin, the actions of humanity, the actions absent of God's spirit. We are the reason that the law doesn't work. We are the reason that the law needed to be fulfilled in Christ. It's not because the law is somehow wrong and should be avoided, but it is because we are unable of keeping it. And the beautiful thing of all of this is that through Jesus, we can now live as though we have fulfilled the law. We can now live as though we are righteous, because in his blood and his forgiveness, we are. So how do we use the law then? This is all very, I hope I haven't bored you too much with this, uh, but it's, how do we use it? If we can't say that it's, it's just nothing now because of Jesus, how do we actually use the law? How do we practically go about it? Well, the first thing I want to say is that the law is really helpful in ha- reading the Bible. When you read through the stories of, of Samuel, of Judges, of Joshua, of all of the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, you're not going to understand the grace and the sin and the failures of humanity without understanding the laws that they were meant to uphold. I think we hold David as this really high esteemed paragon of, of Old Testament morality, and yet when you actually understand the law, you see that David stuffed up a lot, broke the laws a lot. And he did a lot of righteous things too, not to diminish the righteousness that he did. It also helps you understand why guys like Saul, who seem to be doing the right thing, yet fail. And why Solomon, for example, realized that he's breaking the law in the second chapter almost of of 1 Kings. We need to know the law so that we can understand why Jesus would even come to fulfill it in the first place. So my encouragement to you is that it's not an easy thing to read, but read it. 
I think we, we, love, we love Genesis because it's sort of, you know, creation, sin, consequences of sin, then you get to, to Abraham and its promises, and then it's Jacob, and it's all the family drama, and it's all very exciting, and you get to the Exodus, and it's, yeah, and then you get to Exodus 20, and then all the stories kind of stop, and you're like, well, I'm going to skip over to Numbers 9, where they start doing things again, and then we'll get back into the story. It's not, it's not going to help you if you do that. You're going to be missing out on some key, key aspects of how to live for God. Secondly, use it as an acknowledgement of our failing in light of Christ's righteousness. I look at the law as something amazing because I see myself as a failure and yet I can say that I am righteous. Not through anything that I have done, but through the work of God. And that should be a real encouragement to us when we look at the law. Not to sit there and go, oh, this is really strict and, and, and I don't know if I can do this, but to say that I will probably not be able to do this, but God can and has. See that a right response to God's grace is obedience. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. A right response to the grace of God, to the grace of Christ, is obedience. Because that's what a relationship is about. We are free from the consequences of our sin but there is a danger in assuming we are free from having to do what God expects of us. That we can go and live a life that we want irrelevant of God's will just because of his grace. And I want to encourage you, maybe you're here for the first time and you don't really know what this is all about. Living a life that you want to live feels great. But there is a real danger of missing out on the righteousness of God of missing out on being in an awesome relationship with someone who has loved you and died for you. Recognize that Christ comes first. Uh, This is a bit of an awkward one, and I want to be cautious with what I say here. When I was a young teenager, I thought that if I could, I really wanted to date this girl, um, but I was a Christian. You know, I was a teenage Christian, so I was a hypocrite. I probably still am, but I really wanted to date this girl, and so I thought if I make her a Christian then I can date her. So I thought the best way to make her a Christian was make her do everything that the Bible says, you know, to make her stop all her sin. If I just stop her from sinning, then she'll become a Christian. And what I managed to do was lose a friend in all of that. (laughs) But I think sometimes that's where our mind is. We want to stop the world from sinning, and I think our hearts are in the right place in that. We want to honor God, and we want the world to honor God. But we need to acknowledge that Christ needs to come first. Without Jesus in our hearts... Any obedience is just a waste of time. Uh, I had the opportunity to do an assignment on total depravity, and I'm out of time, so I won't talk about it. But the point is is that without Christ, then obedience is meaningless. Finally, as we read the law, rely on godly wisdom on how to use it. There's a lot of symbolism in the book. And so it's important that we, you know, we don't necessarily sit there and go, we have to do this and not do this, but we need to rely on the wisdom of God as we read it to know what, what has been abolished, what has been changed, what is different now that we live. And if you have any questions about that, you're welcome to come to Question Time tonight and we can talk through a bit more some of the laws that maybe are a bit confusing and how to look at them. But uh, we're out a bit out of time, so I'm going to pray for us and then I'll hand you back over. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are with us. We thank you that your law is good, that we know your will for us and that we can do our best to serve you 
even in our failings. We thank you that through our failings, Christ has died for us and that we now stand forgiven as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.